Good morning. My name is Andrew, and we're going to hear from God together now as we read his word. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 15, uh, starting at verse 13. And the page number is on the screen. I'll just give you a couple minutes to find that. Okay, so 2 Samuel, chapter 15. And we're starting at verse 13. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left 10 concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him and they halted at a place some distance away. All his men marched past him, along with all the Carathites and Pelathites, and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I am going? Go back and take your countrymen. May kindness and faithfulness be with you. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives, And as my lord, the king, lives, wherever my lord, the king, may be, whether it means life or death, there your servant will be. David said to Ittai, go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on towards the desert. Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They sat down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. 
The king also said to Zadok the priest, aren't you a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your son Ahimaz and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. You and Abiathar, take your two sons with you. I will wait at the fords in the desert until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, O Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Well, thank you very much indeed, Andy. And uh, let me add my welcome to Nathan's. It's great to see you here. And uh, as uh, Nathan said, and as Joe said, uh, we are very, very thrilled to welcome you. If this is your first time, hope to meet you later, uh, if I haven't met already. Well, do uh, keep that uh, passage that Andy read open, uh, 2 Samuel 15, and you'll find an outline which I hope is helpful on the inside of this sheet. Uh, why don't we pray and ask, ask God for his help as we turn to his word. Let's, uh, let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you have not left us in ignorance and darkness, but have spoken to us through your word so that we might know you and serve you as king. And we pray now as we turn to your word that you would help us to listen and learn, and to see Jesus, and to bow our knees to him. We pray this for his sake. Amen. One of the most remarkable moments in all the teaching of Jesus, I think, uh, comes at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, It's just over three days since Jesus' disciples have watched his violent death at the hands of wicked men with horror and despair, And their hopes for the kingdom, their hopes for everything Jesus was going to do have uh, come to tatters. And those disciples now find themselves speaking face to face with the living Jesus, freshly risen from the dead. And to put it mildly, they are surprised. This was not what they had expected at all. They had not expected him to rise because they had not expected him to die. And the first thing Jesus does in the conversation is rebuke them and call them fools. He says if they'd read their Bibles, they would have expected him both to die and to rise. Have a look at it on the screen, Luke 24. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is a remarkable piece of Jesus' teaching. Look at what he says in the middle there. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Now, do you see what this means? 
For a start, it explains to us, doesn't it, how to read the Bible. It tells us what the Bible is really all about. It tells us that Jesus' suffering, his shame and humiliation on the cross, and his subsequent resurrection from the dead are not small themes, but they are the theme of the whole of God's Word. And the whole Bible story leads up to, expects it, foreshadows it. Think about that. The Bible that you've got in your hand or on your pew is a a big, thick book, isn't it? But Jesus is saying that everything that comes before leads up to the cross and prepares for it, and everything that comes after explains it and applies it. The whole story of the Bible, the entire history of the kingdom of God, as recorded in the Old Testament, leads up to this one pivotal moment So that Jesus can say, I had to suffer these things. And if you'd read the Bible, you would have expected it. Now, the second section of the book of Samuel that we are learning from this term is an important part of that story. Last week, I suggested, as Nathan reminded us, that chapters 15 to 20 have a there and back again kind of shape, a a, a kind of exile and return, death and resurrection shape. And therefore, as we follow the journey of King David, we are looking in advance to the story of Jesus. David's story is a shadow which his final son, Jesus Christ, will come to fulfill. David's there and back again story prepares us for the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that when we see Jesus walking the same path as David, we will know he really is God's promised king. So Jesus' teaching in Luke 24 explains how to read the Bible. But it does more than that. Listen again. Do did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? If that is a summary of the Bible, if that is a summary of God's message to mankind, then it tells us something very important, doesn't it, this morning? It tells us that the most important thing we can know in life is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is the suffering of Jesus on the cross and his present reign over our world that is the one thing we really need to understand. And so think about what this means. As we hit the working week tomorrow, the thing that is really going to make a difference is that Jesus died and that he rose again. As we raise children, battle health problems, worry about financial challenges, have some of those sleepless nights, navigate friendships, sit in seminars and lessons. As we go through our normal life, the key thing we need to know is that Jesus died for our sins and has risen again. And as we face eternity and wonder where we will place our hope, the one thing we need to know is that Jesus died for our sins, and rose again. And as we wonder what God is like, where does he focus his power? Where do we see his love, his justice, his grace? The one thing we need to understand is Jesus died for our sins and has risen again. Well, let's turn back then to the story that Andy read to us, and we'll follow it under the three headings that you'll see on the sheet. Firstly, the rejected king and his people in 13 to 22. 
Our section this morning begins and ends with David receiving bad news. Here's the first messenger, verse 13. A messenger came today and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Now, if you were here last week, this is not a surprise. We were told in 15 verse 6 that Absalom's campaign to undermine David's kingship had worked. 15.6, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. In 15.12, we are told, if you look back at that verse, that the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept increasing. And so it's not a surprise to be told what David is told. And David doesn't seem surprised either, judging by the swift action he takes. Look at verse 14. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately. It is rather remarkable, isn't it? That David hears that one line of the messenger, just a single sentence, and he scarpers back into his old life of the outlaw. What does that quick response tell us about David? Should we conclude, as a number of commentators do, that David has lost his bottle, that he capitulates at the first sign of danger, or are there others speculate that he was actually just naively unaware of the growing threat, that he was taken by surprise by Absalom. Or even, as veteran Bible scholar A.W. Pink suggests, David at this point is just, and I quote, a pathetic, beaten old man. I don't think that's what we should conclude, for three reasons. First, we need to remember who has actually brought all this about in the first place. And the answer is God. Remember, if you've been here, that before Absalom's conspiracy even began, God had said through the prophet Nathan, back in chapter 12, that violence and ruin through the sword was never going to leave David's house as a result of his adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan, you may remember, told David that God viewed his act as evil And he would reap the consequences. And the two words that the prophet used, he said, there'll be ruin and there'll be a sword. Now look at verse 14 and notice those two words, ruin and sword. In other words, David knows that the very ruin and sword that he fears from Absalom is the ruin and sword that God himself has promised to bring. And so David believes, as the Bible teaches everywhere, that God really is in control. He knows that this act of Absalom's is evil, but he also knows it's from God, both at the same time. And this is one of the themes we're seeing in this section of 2 Samuel. God really is in control of his world. Evil never stops his purposes. Evil can never be justified because it is part of God's purposes, but God can and does use evil for his purposes. Now, if that that troubles you, if that stretches your mind, then I'm glad. Because God should stretch our minds. If you're a student here this morning, maybe you've come to study some really complicated thing. What's the most complicated thing we teach at the university? You know, astrochemical physics. Is there such a thing? (laughs) that, That kind of thing. You know, the chemistry of 
asteroids or something like that, some really profoundly difficult thing. Well, let me tell you, that, that, that is going to be a doddle compared to understanding God. Because God is big. I studied English at university. That's, that's also you know, a very difficult subject. <laughs> but it's a doddle compared to understanding God and his control of the world. And as we go through these chapters, we're going to increase our view of God. God is so sovereign that the one and the same act, the evil act of Absalom, is also the act of God. We don't need to protect God when bad things happen, protect his reputation, justify him. He is responsible for everything that happens in this world. That's what it means to be God. He is big. And David knows this. And we should know it too by now. Remember Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and exalts. And so I think David flees because he realizes he is faced both with the evil of Absalom and the righteous judgment of God at the same time. And there's no conflict between the two. But there's a second reason David flees so quickly when he hears that word of rebellion. It's because if you look at verse 14, he wants to save the city from being put to the sword. That is, he wants to save the people in Jerusalem. And he wants to save them even at cost of his own position, even at the cost of his own life. And so David just moves out of Jerusalem. He vacates it in order to allow Absalom to come in peacefully. And far from being a pathetic, beaten old man, I want to suggest that this is David at his best, at his most king-like that we've seen since chapter 11. I want you to notice the change. You may remember in chapter 11, David, in the throes of his adultery and plotting and scheming, he was willing that many should die for him. But now he is willing that he will be the one who will die for the many. David leaves Jerusalem to save Jerusalem. But there's another reason, a third reason for David's swift departure. And that is that we now see that he is not alone. Verse 15, the king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. It turns out that the message given to David in verse 13 was not quite the whole story. The messenger said the hearts of the men of Israel have gone over to Absalom, but it's not quite right, is it? It turns out that David still has some loyal supporters. He still has people who trust him, who refer to him as king. And actually, it turns out he has quite a few. Verse 16, the king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at a place some distance away. All his men marched past him, along with all the Kerithites and Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath, marched before the king. Now these verses are very, very finely written. The narrator almost breaks into poetry in verse 18, because he wants to present us with two extraordinary realities side by side. We're meant to notice the place that David is leaving 
and the people that he is taking. The place he is leaving, the people he's taking. Let's think about those two things. Firstly, think about the place he is leaving. Do you notice the way the narrator kind of slows the action down and wants us to really see, doesn't he, this departure from the city? Later in the book, we will see the kind of the final battle, and it will take about three verses to narrate, but he really wants us to slow down and see this. He wants us to feel the sadness as David leaves the city. Notice the sort of the, the halt on the edge of the city and the glance back. David sort of standing, inspecting his troops. Leaving his concubines may be a hint that he thinks he's going to return, but we are supposed to be disturbed by this. Why? Because of the very serious significance of Jerusalem in the Bible story. You may remember, if you've been here, that, that uh, back in chapter 6, there was a, a great moment of celebration when David brought the ark into Jerusalem with rejoicing, because that was a kind of climax of the Bible story so far. Here is the dwelling place of God on earth, Jerusalem, God's city, the heart of the kingdom of God. This is what the Bible had been working up to at this point, that God's people should live in his place, worshipping him as God. Jerusalem was meant to provide a, a, an answer to the, the Garden of Eden that was lost. It was a glimpse of the future that God is bringing to his world. And now, Jerusalem is being lost. David is leaving God's place. But you see that alongside that image of David leaving God's place, there is another image of David gathering God's people. It's a considerable number, actually. The word household in verse 16, just, it may sound at first like his immediate family, but readers of 1 Samuel may remember the word household from chapter 7. The word dynasty the kingdom of David. So what we're meant to see as David leaves Jerusalem is that he's gathering God's people. God is gathering his people to his king. And the unexpected twist, the surprise, is what kind of people make it into that kingdom? Not, notice, loyal Israelites, but Gentiles. Kerithites, Pelethites, and most surprising of all, the Gittites, Philistines from Gath. And if there's one thing the city of Gath was famous for, it is the hometown of David's famous antagonist, Goliath of Gath. In other words, who are these people? These people are former enemies who are now friends. And so, Put those two pictures together. This is what I think we are meant to see. David has lost the city, but he's not lost the kingdom. The kingdom is now being formed as these people, these outcasts and foreigners and Gentiles, former enemies, are gathered around God's true king, taken out into the wilderness. Now to emphasize that, the narrator zooms in on one, just one of those people, Ittai the Gittite. I, I think he's probably the leader of the Gittites, but he's given to us as an example. Verse 19, David sends him back and says, there's no need for you to come. You're, you're a foreigner. You've just kind of turned up. You're the new kid on the block. Don't worry. He gives him this kind and generous opportunity to go back into the city 
and live his life there. But look at Ittai's reply, verse 21. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. Now that ought to strike us as remarkable. There are not many moments in the Bible where someone makes such a commitment. You may think of Naomi and Ruth having a similar conversation. You may think of Peter, Jesus' disciple, having a similar conversation. But here is someone who is throwing himself, body and soul, life and death, at the feet of God's king. And he's a Philistine. He's made a choice. He's burnt his bridges. He's left the safety of Jerusalem. And although David looks very unlike a king, Ittai has made his choice. And so we're seeing the true kingdom, the true Israel, the true remnant forming around God's king. And the choice is like this. Stay in the city with its walls and its safety and the handsome prince Absalom or go with David, the outlaw, with nothing. And we're being shown here the choice that we will face as we meet Jesus, as many people did in the Gospels, attracting some, repelling others, and mostly the people he repels are the very people who ought to welcome him, and the people he attracts, who are they in the Gospels? The outcasts, the sinners, foreigners, the rejects of society. And it may well be, in fact I know it is the case, that there are people here this morning weighing up that same decision. Is Jesus really worth my loyalty and commitment? Can I maybe have a bit of both, Absalom and Jesus? Can I have the world and the kingdom of God? Well, Ittai the Gittite shows us, no, you must choose between the two. Well, how do you decide? How do you? How does anybody throw in their lot with somebody who looks so unlike a king and whose kingdom seems so non-existent? Well, come to the second section and we'll see. The humble king and his God, 23 to 29. Look with me at verse 23. The whole countryside, literally the whole land, was weeping aloud as the people passed by. The king crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved towards the desert. What an extraordinary thing to say. The whole land was weeping. As if the whole world was falling apart. Why is David's departure from Jerusalem such a tragedy? Well, there's a number of clues that help us put it in the context of the Bible story. Firstly, notice the movement from the city to the wilderness, verse 23. If you know your Bible story, you'll know that this is where they came from. They came from the wilderness wanderings, and they entered the promised land under Joshua. This is emphasized by a repetition of the word crossover or passover. 18, his men passed by him. 18, the Gittites passed by. 22, pass on. It's there nine times, actually, between 18 and 33, this passover word. 
a word that is associated with Israel leaving Egypt, but also a word that is associated with Israel entering the promised land under Joshua across the Jordan. And so what we're seeing here is a reversal of the conquest of the promised land. The promised land that God gave to Israel is being taken away. No wonder the land is weeping as if the world is falling apart. As far as Israel is concerned, the world is falling apart. But in the context of this, notice another force at work. Verse 24. Zadok was there too. And all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Now, now what what are we told here? Why is this this ark suddenly making an appearance? What is the significance of this? Well, if you're a careful reader, you may have noticed that apart from on the lips of Ittai, this is the first time God has got a mention in this section of 2 Samuel. But also, what is this ark, this wooden box? Well, you'll know that it was brought into Jerusalem back in chapter 6 with great fanfare. And apparently the Levites thought that it should go where David went. But look at what David says. He says, verse 25, The king said, Take the ark back to the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Now, what do those words tell us about David? They tell us something about what is going on in his heart at this moment of terrible distress. They tell us that David trusts God to keep his promise, no matter how things look. See, the ark of God contained the word of God. It contained the promise of God. That's why it's called the ark of the covenant. And David is saying, it doesn't matter where the ark is. It doesn't matter where the wooden box is. What matters is that God is able to keep his promise. And if God is going to keep his promise, then it doesn't matter where David is. It doesn't matter what happens to Jerusalem. It doesn't even matter what happens to David. If God has made a promise, the kingdom cannot be at risk. And now we're beginning to see why some people followed David into the wilderness. Now we're beginning to see why millions of people followed Jesus. Because although it might not look much, although the kingdom might not look very convincing, God is on his side. And God's word never fails. At a moment of intense suffering and anguish, Jesus says this in John 18. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's almost an exact parallel, isn't it, of what David says in verse 25 and 26. Just notice, by the way, that David's faith in God's promise does not make him passive or resigned. On the contrary, verse 27, 29, he's thinking, he's planning, he's scheming. Even as he sends the ark back with all the significance I've just mentioned, he is actually, notice in 27 to 29, He's actually setting up a network of priestly spies who will infiltrate Absalom's circle, keep David informed, and we'll come back to them next week. But the point is, David trusts God, but it doesn't make him passive. He works to bring about the very thing that he's trusting God to do. 
But there's one final stage of David's journey we need to see, and this is where this is all leading to. Thirdly, the suffering king and his tears. Because the narrator now brings us very sharply focused in on David himself and his personal suffering. Back in verse 23, the narrator noted that as he left Jerusalem, he crossed the east side through the Kidron Valley. And in the Bible, when anyone leaves on the east, we're meant to see in the symbolism of the Bible that they're leaving God's presence. Adam and Eve leaving the Garden of Eden, for example. But not only that, but this Kidron Valley is a particularly horrible place in the Bible. It became the infamous site on the east side of the city where unwanted things were cast away. It's like this sort of the rubbish dump of Jerusalem. So in 1 Kings 15, for example, the good king Asa is trying to clear up after the mess his father Abijah has made and his grandmother. And what he does is he gathers up all their idols, all their kind of statues of the the pagan gods, and he, he chucks them into the Kidron Valley. And 2 Kings 23, Josiah, another good king, trying to clear up from the previous generation's idolatry. He, he cuts down all the idols. He takes them to the Kidron Valley. He burns them. He grinds them into powder. And he scatters the powder over the dead who are buried in the Kidron Valley. Then he pulls down all the pagan altars. He smashes them to pieces. And he chucks them into the Kidron Valley. This is the rubbish dump of Jerusalem. This is where you put the unwanted, the unclean, the rejected. And I think we're meant to see in the symbolism of this that Israel is rejecting her king, casting him out into humiliation and shame, consigning God's Messiah to the dustbin of history. And so no wonder David weeps, verse 30. David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too. And were weeping as they went. Having crossed the place of rejection, David now ascends this place called the Mount of Olives with a final display of grief, a moment of sorrow, shame, and humiliation, walking in the valley of the shadow of death. And just as we think things cannot get worse, he receives a second message, this time telling him that a trusted advisor has betrayed in verse 31. We don't need to wonder how David felt about this because he writes it in the Psalms. Psalm 3, as Aaron explained. And also Psalm 41, where David says, Even my closest friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And I think we're meant to understand that this is the lowest point of David's life. But now we need to remember what it's here for. That David's suffering is here to prepare us for the suffering of his greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ. David's walk out of the city of Jerusalem is a shadow. The reality will be filled by Jesus. As we watch David's rejection at the hands of wicked men, his betrayal by his friends, his mockery and humiliation, we are looking in advance at the shadow of Jesus. So that Jesus could say to his disciples, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ 
have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. Well, there's the story. We'll come back to it next week and those spies. But I want to conclude now with three reflections on this and what we learn about Jesus as he follows David's steps. Sovereignty, suffering, and shame. Firstly, we've seen a number of times, and we'll see again, the beautiful but brain-aching combination of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. We've seen that believing God is in control does not undermine human responsibility. We'll see it again next week, that little kind of arrow prayer that, Jesus, uh, that David shoots up in verse 31, turn Ahitophel's wisdom into folly, we're going to see that David actually takes actions to bring about the answer to that prayer. We saw that the ruin David fears from Absalom's hand is the ruin God promised would come upon him as a result of his sin. And so we're learning that God is big, that evil never stops his purposes. Evil cannot be justified because it's part of God's purposes, but God is so big, he is so in control, that he can and does use evil for his purposes. That is the sovereignty of God. And if this is a new subject for you, or a subject that makes you scratch your head, then I'm so glad because it means you, you are expanding your view of God And all of us should have our view of God expanded, shouldn't we? Because God is big. And nowhere do we see this more clearly than when willful human evil and the will of God come together in the cross of Christ. Humanity planned it for evil. God did it for good. Sovereignty. Secondly, suffering. The parallels between this episode and the life of David and the last day of Jesus' earthly life are so explicit that we have to conclude the gospel writers and Jesus himself were conscious of the connection. Let me show you. For example, the Kidron Valley is only mentioned once in the New Testament. But in John 18.1, this is the moment that Jesus leaves the center of Jerusalem and he crosses the Kidron Valley as part of his arrest, his mockery, on his way to be crucified. What about the Mount of Olives? Well, the Mount of Olives is only mentioned twice in the whole of the Old Testament, once here and once in Zechariah. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all refer to Jesus' journey to the Mount of Olives at the moment of his greatest suffering, weeping over Jerusalem as he heads to the cross in shame and humiliation. And praise my Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Echoing Jesus' words in this passage. And just as David was betrayed by his close friend, so Jesus, on the night before he died, was betrayed by Judas, who he explicitly says was done in fulfillment of Psalm 41. John 13, 18. But this is to fulfill the scripture, he who shares my bread has lifted his heel against me. And so as Jesus heads to the cross we actually come to know what he was thinking. This is why we study the Old Testament, by the way. If you ever kind of wonder, well, why do we take so long? Why are we going through this year after year after year so slowly? We're getting inside the head of Jesus Christ. We're learning here what Jesus was thinking he was doing 
as he walked to the cross. Isn't that remarkable? As he walked to the Mount of Olives, as he wept for Jerusalem, we are learning that he was following in the footsteps of David and gathering around him the true people of God. As a physical kingdom is lost, the real kingdom is beginning. Of course, there, was, there is one enormous difference between Jesus and David's suffering. David was suffering as a result of his own sin. Jesus was suffering for hours. He suffered to gather those who were his enemies. And this is how he does it. By allowing himself to be rejected by God's people, by allowing himself to cross the Kidron Valley, by allowing himself to climb the Mount of Olives, by allowing himself to be crucified on a cross, by allowing humanity to consign him to the dustbin of history to rescue his very enemies. As Hebrews 13 puts it, and so Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. But what kind of people choose Jesus? What kind of people follow David over Absalom? Or people who can bear the shame? So you remember the motley gang of Gittites and foreigners who left the security and status and strength of the city for danger and discomfort and deprivation in exile, they realized they had to make a choice. They couldn't sit on the fence. They couldn't have both. They had to choose between the strong, handsome Absalom and David, who did look like a pathetic old man, a man of sorrows, unesteemed. And why would you choose that? Because you realize that if this is God's king, This is all you need. Who needs Jerusalem when you have a king who is willing to lay down his life for you? Who needs the world when you have the promises of God? And so I suggest we this morning face the same choice. David or Absalom, Jesus or the world, glory or shame. And so can I ask you, brothers and sisters, friends, this morning, will you take the lead from Ittai the Gittite and follow him in life and death? Will you bear the shame of the crucified Christ in order to find yourself on the day of resurrection among the true people of God? Let's pray that we will. Let's pray together. Hebrews 13, verse 12. And so Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us therefore go to him outside the camp, bearing the shame he bore. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus' betrayal, rejection, suffering, and humiliation in death is how you chose in your sovereign purposes to bring us the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom, available now for those from all nations who submit to Jesus as Lord. 
We ask that you'd forgive us when we are ashamed to call him Lord or fear the scorn of this world. Please forgive us for wanting both Jesus and the world. Help us now to bow our hearts to him without shame or fear, ever thankful for his life and death, which brings forgiveness, living and dying in the solid hope of resurrection. Amen.